This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. Hi, this is Nick Plizzy from The Sacred Science, and I'm really excited about today's talk with Dennis McKenna. Many of you already know Dennis from the pioneering work he did in the Amazon with his brother Terrence McKenna back in the 1970s. This is detailed in his recent book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. He is a leading ethnopharmacologist and an authority on plant chemistry. It's an honor to be here with you today, Dennis. How are you? I'm very well, Nick. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. And thank you. Thank you and, and Maylene so much for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing for the last, you know, I don't know, I'd say 10 years, it's been kind of a, a not to, not to over-exaggerate, but it's been kind of like a dream of mine to have a conversation with you one-on-one like this. A lot of what you've done, um, you know, the work you've done inspired us to create the sacred science to begin with. So, you know, really, really honored and um, just grateful, you know, for everything that you've contributed to the world of plant medicine and spirituality and, you know, bring, bringing science into the picture in, in, in a way that really complements all the, all the work that, you know, that we're doing down in the jungle and with native cultures across, around the world. So I think um, the, where I'd love to start, you know, a lot of people know your work who are listening to this right now, but a lot of people, you know, may, may need, you know, a little bit of background. And I wanted to, wanted to know if you could explain to our audience what ethnopharmacology is and, you know, what your work in it, you know, what you, what you do with it. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, that's easy. (laughs) Um, there, there's a kind of a tortured meaning long, uh, definition of ethnopharmacology, but it kind of, it kind of makes sense as you, if, as you unpack it. So people say, what is ethnopharmacology? Well, it's the study of medicinal plants used in traditional cultures, right? But not really. It, it's more than that. It's uh, it, the formal definition, which I didn't come up with, but I like it. It's the interdisciplinary scientific investigation of biologically active substances used or observed by humans in traditional cultures. Wow. <laughs> it's a many-part definition, but they're all important in the sense that 
it's not confined to plants, right? It, I mean, fungi, animals, all kinds of things in nature contain biologically active substances that are useful. It's not confined to things that we might ingest or psychoactives or whatever, because something like arrow poisons, for example, would be legitimate uh, subject for ethnopharmacology or, or looking at, for example, uh, uh, animals use of medicinal plants, you know, that humans might observe. And there's good evidence that uh, often humans take their cues from watching animals. So it's not confined to uh, things humans ingest. It's not confined to plants. It is used, it may be observed by humans, and also the traditional cultures part is kind of uh, important because it puts a fence around it. In other words, it's we're looking at traditional or indigenous use pretty much. Uh, otherwise, what we do now and call pharmacology and biomedicine, I mean, that's ethnopharmacology too, because we're, you know, we're all monkeys, we're all humans doing this human activity, but we don't usually think of you know, Pfizer and those people doing ethnopharmacology, in some sense they are in a very broad way. But so that's the reason for that kind of tortured definition. So, so, so ethnopharmacology, there, there are major pharmaceutical companies that are using the same practices that have people down in the jungles of the world trying to, trying to find plants that are promising for their particular products. You know, you wish that was true on some level. <laughs> it's not really that true. You know, I mean, it, it's it's puzzling to me as a person interested in drug discovery and, and interested in bridging this gap between traditional practices and and you know modern phytopharmaceutical technology. Uh, the drug companies, at least. If they are, if they have people scouring the jungle looking for new medicines, they don't really talk about it. And in fact, they're not really doing it very much. If they're doing it, they're doing it primarily for PR purposes. They're not really serious about it. Why is that? A few things have contributed to that over time. One is this whole intellectual property thing. Uh, Pharmaceutical companies or corporations, they have that perspective. Their objective is to be profitable, uh, finding new medicines and healing people and all that. That's a distinctly secondary objective, even though they'll tell you it's the most important thing. No, the most important thing is making money. They don't want to share. They want to own the genetic resources. They want to own the things they might isolate from natural sources and turn into drugs. They don't want to share that with anybody. Certainly not with a bunch of savages, a bunch of indigenous brown people, you know? I mean, why should we share that? So there's a real, you know, it used to be that uh, biopiracy and, and uh, you know, indigenous intellectual property were, was, was not really even acknowledged as an issue. You know, and so they could just come to these cultures and say, tell us all your secrets. Thank you very much. We'll take that knowledge. You may get a check in the mail 20 years down the line. But, you know, they have seen no ethical issue with appropriating knowledge. Uh, but now that's changed because 
you know, we live in a global world and indigenous people are not stupid and they understand that this knowledge is valuable now, but they're, you know, there's a new level sort of of sophistication because, uh, you know, they can hire their own lawyers and they have, you know, so the indigenous groups have, have put some, some blocks uh, in the pharmaceutical, in the way of the pharmaceutical industry toward making these discoveries. And it's been a disincentive, which is an unfortunate thing because everybody loses, right? They don't, the drug companies say, thank you very much. We won't proceed with this. And a potentially life-saving medicine is not discovered and people are not benefited, you know? So we really need to look for a, a framework that works for everybody uh, in that respect. And then the, I think the other factor that's uh, contributed to all this is about, mm, it's 2015, about the end of the 80s, uh, pharmaceutical industry was developing all of these sort of synthetic in-house methods to discover new compounds. All this fancy chemistry, combinatorial chemistry and this sort of thing. And the perception was that they don't need nature. New, new drugs are not going to come from nature. They're going to come out of vats in laboratories. They'll be made by synthetic chemists. This was a huge miscalculation uh, because nature's always given us the leads for drug discovery. And in the hubris that they had, it was like, we do not need nature anymore. We can think these things up. Well, plants are much better chemists than chemists when it comes to thinking of new structures, right? So the, the synthetic compounds come through these mass screening approaches and mass synthesis approaches where in a single pot you could take a, a structural template and, and make every possible derivative of it that was, that was possible to do under the reaction conditions. Then you would just put them through these different receptor screens mostly they thought, wow, this is great, but it didn't work. The, the crisis right now in the pharmaceutical industry is that the drug discovery pipeline is empty, um, you know, or getting empty. And, and by empty, to fill the pipeline, I'm talking about drugs that are new discoveries that make it from, from the field actually into the clinic new compounds like that are not being discovered every every year there are fewer and fewer of them and they're wondering what what are we doing wrong well what you're doing wrong is you abandon nature back in the day when and it's true discovering uh, drugs from natural sources apart from all the intellectual property issues but just the sheer challenge of isolating things out of uh, you know, natural sources, purify them and all that, uh, it's much easier to synthesize things. But if the, if the medicines, if, if the drugs don't have the activity, then it's not so good. So now, you know, we've gone through about a 20-year cycle where the drug companies are, again, waking up to the fact that this was a mistake. And now they're trying to reintegrate nature. There's a lot more attention and interest I don't think they send people out in, you know, teams of people to comb the jungle. And in, in fact, they can't do that now because of the, because of the ownership issues. The smart ones are working with people that are already, you know, immersed 
in that environment and you, you, you get the information by talking to people, traditional healers and so on, who know how to use the plants, you know, but you, you know, it's, it's complex, but it's, you know, it's not like uh, Pfizer or Merck or all these huge companies have teams of people combing the jungle. And in some ways that's unfortunate because, you know, it, it, it gives an incentive to, I mean, there are literally trillions of undiscovered drugs, trillions of dollars worth of undiscovered drugs waiting to be discovered in regions of high biodiversity. If there was a concerted effort to do that, it would, it would reflect the true value of the rainforest. But since it's not being done, the assessment of the rainforest and its value, if you just, you know, its value is tremendous, but capitalism tends to look at dollars and cents. And so there's an incentive to undervalue the rainforest. And that's, that's unfortunate. I mean, if, if the environment could be changed so that there's more reciprocity, uh, I mean, ideally, drug comp I don't know how you would approach it. You know, ideally, drug companies would gather together to cooperate to create a consortium and set aside X billion dollars, a certain number of billions of dollars, and just say, you know, we'll set aside these environments, we'll protect these environments for the right to bioprospect and go through it. But we'll make sure that you know, indigenous people are in good shape, the environment's in good shape, their health care is taken care of. But that, of course, takes cooperation on a global level and it's just not a not a model that works for capitalist predatory companies. So it has to come from, I don't know, the UN possibly could be a framework for this to happen. It's just not happening. I love this idea though. I mean, at the at the root of that is that plants are better are the best chemists there are. Plants are better chemists than chemists. Plants are natural chemists. And that kind of goes into, you know, the heart of what what I, I was excited to talk to you about today, which is just this idea, you know, I heard in a few of your recent talks um, that, you know, this concept that we humans, we have language. Our language is, is, you know, we communicate through words, whereas plants communicate through their chemistry, which I think is probably pretty fundamental in this idea of them being better chemists than chemists. They speak in, 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 chem, in chemistry, so they've had the, they, they are constantly adapting and learning new ways to, to communicate. So... I just wanted to hear a little more about that. And, you know, I, I would love to, you know, just get, you know, if you could try to put that into some kind of framework, this idea of, of how plants communicate that way and how, how through that communication, they've, they've sort of learned um, how to communicate with us and create environments that are conducive to, 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 to species like us that could potentially be, be of benefit to them if we, don't, um, if we don't ignore them and do the wrong thing. Right. Well, yeah. Um, if, you know, if you... Uh... If you look at if you if you look at the chemical biodiversity in the plant kingdom, and you've probably seen I've talked about this. So roughly, uh, you know, the chemistry chemical biodiversity that you find is divided into so-called primary metabolites or secondary metabolites. The primary metabolites are just pretty much universal. These are just the molecules of life. But then you have these secondary metabolites, which are obviously not essential for life because, you know, they're not found in everything, 
uh, but they're found in specific species or plant or, or families or whatever. And so what purpose do they serve? Well, these are the secondary, the so-called messenger molecules. And they mediate plants' relationships with everything in their environment from fungi and the soil and insects. It's a whole big thing with insects, uh, mammals, humans, uh, anything that might interact with them. And on all levels of organization, and often it's the same compounds, right? Nature's very creative at, at uh, you know, it costs, I mean, it's not really a, a big metabolic or energy cost for plants to make these things because they have photosynthesis, right? So energy to synthesize compounds is not really a limiting factor. Still, if one compound works for one purpose and it has a and it will work for another, then nature's ingenious about uh, you know repurposing these molecules for multiple reasons. I, I, I mean, for example, uh, beta carbolines are a good example. You know, beta carbolines are the alkaloids that are found in ayahuasca, uh, and they're the monoamine oxidase inhibitors in ayahuasca that activate or protect the DMT from being breaking, broken down. So they have that effect in mammals. They inhibit uh, monoamine oxidase, uh, but they also are photodynamic. So they have antibiotic activities and antiparasitic activities uh, in the presence of, of light. They're light activated, some of them. Um, they do other things too. I mean, they, uh, they have... You know, if you put your sort of your panel of beta carbolines through a screen, you'll find antibiotic activity, antiparasitic activity, antifungal activity. They do, uh, they have a whole spectrum of, uh, of activities. So plants are ingenious about using this, these, this, these, these messenger molecules in, in a variety of contexts. So, you know, people don't understand. You know, it, or it's, it's easy to look at a plant and say, well, it's, it's just kind of sitting there, you know, there's not, it's not doing much, you know, but it's deceptive because actually there's a lot going on, even though a plant is, is just sitting there, it, and, but you don't see it. I mean, it's photosynthesizing. That's a whole process. It's making these compounds, and I guess the point I'm trying to make is it's like doing a, it's like being in a multiple chat session, you know, with everything around it. I mean, it's talking to the fungi, it's talking to the insects, it's talking to the animals that might be around, it's talking to other plants. And, you know, this is the chemical, uh, sort of the, you can think of uh, these secondary compounds as kind of ecosystemic neurotransmitters. You know, in the sense that in the brain, neurotransmitters are those small molecules that mediate signal transduction, right? Signal transduction is a huge thing in biology. Uh, and, you know, much as these neurotransmitters, which are derived from plants ultimately, uh, work to, uh, you know, link, let neurons, hyperconnected neuron neuronal networks talk to each other. They also tie the ecosystem together in, in very much the same way. It's all about homeostasis, feedback loops, and signal transduction. So, 
So is it is it any is it is it a coincidence? Obviously not that that these that these neurotransmitters that are plant 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 created plant and synthesized um, match so closely the ones that naturally occur in our brains. I mean, is is there how, how what is the explanation for that? What came you know what came first? You know, obviously plants came first, but why do we why why is there such similarity? What is that achieving in this in this ecosystem? It, it's it's just a reflection. It's just a reflection of exactly this. It's a reflection of, you know, sort of evolutionary consequences. You know, the neurotransmitters existed. I mean, they weren't neurotransmitters because there were no neuro, nervous systems at the time. But serotonin, for example, is one of the oldest neurotransmitters phylogenetically. Uh, and it's one of the oldest neurohormones in our phylogeny, in, in mammalian phylogeny, but it's much more ancient than that. I mean, the most, you know, there are people that have looked at the, uh, at the uh, phylogeny of the genes that make tryptophan, which is an essential amino acid. Uh, I mean, we don't make it, but it's universal in everything. Uh, and, you know, the, the genetic, uh, the so-called trip operon, the cluster of genes that synthesizes that amino acid, which is the precursor for all the indole alkaloids and some that we love so much, right? And uh, uh, that goes back 3.8 billion years at least. I mean, it was made by... The, it's found, those genes are found in the archaea uh, bacteria, which are the most ancient organisms that we know. So when it comes to mammals, we're a relatively recent player on the evolutionary stage. And nature has, you know, uh, the neurotransmitters already had these messenger functions uh, in the ecosystem. Uh, and when nervous systems began to evolve, it, it was just a, here's a convenient molecule that is very effective in signal transduction processes. So it was just adopted. Ultimately, at some point, we, we, we uh, you know, we trace our ancestry to, I think the name is, I think they call it the LUCA for short, the likely universal common ancestor. We all evolved from that critter, whatever it was, you know, and it was probably not very interesting, but it gave rise to everything else. And so as you got this proliferation genetically in, in species and so on, the molecules were carried along. And what was useful uh, was adapted to numerous purposes. So I think that that's the answer. It wasn't a coincidence so much as an inevitability. I mean, why should life keep reinventing the wheel in a certain way? If you've got something that works, you fit it together like Lego pieces, you know? And, and that's, I think that's, that's the reason. You know, I, I feel like this, this concept, and I'm kind of ashamed to admit it, but this concept of um, our, um, not inferiority, but you know the equal playing field that 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 humans and plants are on is is kind of a new thing. Even doing even doing like the shamanic work and plant medicine work, you know, I've never fully grasped it until recently. You know, just just reading reading some of your work and um, listening to some of your talks is this idea that it's it's possible that we are we don't we we don't know what we think we know. 
I mean, obviously I, I, I believe that in many aspects of my life, but I've always thought I had the plant world kind of figured out. I kind of understood how it, how it sort of, you know, the, the role it played in my life, but the, the work that you're doing kind of points to this and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but it points to this idea that they might be the ones that, that are actually in charge, you know, and, and we're the ones, or, or we're, we're, we're helping, we're doing, not doing their bidding, but that, but that our role is not new. We're not the, we're not the apex, you know, um, we're we're not the apex. We are not running this show. Right. I mean, if ayahuasca, you know, and you've heard me say this in talks, but I, I, it doesn't hurt to reiterate. I mean, people say, well, what do you learn from ayahuasca? One thing I learn is one thing it really emphasizes to me always just reminds me how little we do know. I mean, it's very humbling in that way, you know, to be reminded that we tend to be, we're scientific, we're post-technological. We tend to think we know a great deal. Actually, we know only a very small slice of what's really going on. Science is very good at looking at isolated phenomena, you know, and, and small pieces of reality and it's good for detail work you know you dissect some process you can really understand it in depth the question is how does it fit into the entire holistic environment that life exists in and people tend to not you know it's not very good of of at creating this holistic picture you know so so that is uh that is one aspect of it and i think science tends to be get a little arrogant about how much it knows and there's no place for that because actually what we don't know will always greatly exceed what we do know and you know occasionally you get people uh you know will write a book about science and say well you know the, the general gist of it is well we pretty well have it figured out right we understand the main underpinnings of reality and the rest of it is just mopping up and clearing up the details and so on I always have to laugh because that is so short-sighted. And usually, you know, a book like that will come out and then next month some discovery will be made that like completely overturns our understanding of some process. Well, I guess maybe not. We maybe we don't know so much. And I think it's good to remember that we really that we don't know so much. And and then the other thing is, yeah, we think that and we're we've been poisoned by this Judeo-Christian perspective, uh, you know, that's poisoned the collective mind, the idea that we're separated from nature and we own nature and we dominate nature. None of that is true. Uh, you know, if, and it's, it, and lucky for us, it's not true because look at what a mess we make of our own societies. My God, you know, I mean, we're, we're busy undermining the, the stability of nature, but imagine if we were actually in charge of it. Um, you know, so there is, there is that aspect as well. I, you may know the author, Michael Pollan, um, and the omnivorous dilemma, he, he describes this beautifully. We think we're domesticating plants, but it's funny how we seem to be carrying out the plants agenda. So who is working for who here? <laughs> you know, but, but I don't really have a problem with that because, because uh, you know, if you look at the biosphere as a whole, clearly plants are the essential thing that's keeping the whole shooting match going it's keeping the whole thing going because it's 
through photosynthesis. It's bringing energy in from the cosmos and binding it into chemical energy, and then it runs this, you know, this superorganism. What it amounts to, uh, the biosphere is a superorganism, and it's being discussed in that way. The whole concept of Gaia and so on, people dismiss that and they say oh this is just new age hippie nonsense actually it's not um you know the gaia concept was not uh uh developed by a hippie it was developed by james lovelock largely who is a geophysicist and a fairly hard scientist uh and for a while it was you know fell out of favor but i think people are beginning to you know look at that in a different way and, and say, yeah, basically that is it, that, that life is maintaining conditions on earth that are amenable to life. And if, if those processes weren't going on, some of these key factors like the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere and so on would quickly go off track. So life is keeping the earth uh, well, hospitable to life. So who's running things? Not us. In fact, we seem to be the little the piece of grit, you know, in the smooth running machinery of the living thing that is uh, that is uh, you know destabilizing a lot of these processes now. So, so no, not only are we not running things, I think we're sort of the you know we're the species of concern to the community of life, and it's like, what are we going to do with these crazy primates, you know, who who can't seem to uh, you know, restrain themselves. You know, just speaking, going back to that, that concept of, um, of, you know, the Judeo-Christian um, perspective on nature and how it needs to be tamed, controlled, feared, you know, even, you know, look at like old fairy tales. I mean, it just feels like there's this, it's this enemy. The nature is the enemy. It's, it's almost, you know, synonymous with, um, with, you know, the devil itself sometimes. And you look at um, certain interpretations, I, you know, this I, you know, I, I this idea that when we became agrarian, the first agrarian civilizations after we kind of came out of the trees and, and stopped the hunting, hunting and gathering, as soon as we started doing that, as soon as, soon as we took a step from that more free, you know, um, living in harmony with the earth kind of lifestyle, however many thousands of years ago, you know, the idea that all of a sudden, um, you know, on these on these you know cow patties, these these little species of delicious looking mushrooms sprout up is a, is a really intriguing to me. It's like, as we, I mean, and, and you, 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 I'm sure will have your, have a much more well thought out perspective on this. But for me, it's like, it looks at like, it, it feels like we were, we took one big step away from probably something that was, that was more of a, of a, of a living and bright with nature towards, towards this agrarian kind of lifestyle. And the first thing that happens is it almost feels like nature kind of gives us this little, SOS, you know, a little warning to kind of keep, keep her in mind, you know, as we're kind of plowing our fields and, you know, starting to, you know, raise, raise livestock. It's like, well, you know, now there's going to be this, you know, this portal right back into the middle of what's, what's most important that I'm going to send your way. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? I, I, you know, I know that, I know that the psilocybin mushroom is, it shows up a lot in your work and, and I would, I would love to just hear your thoughts on, on why, why you think that showed up when it did and what you think the significance of that was? Well, I think, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it was always there, right? These mushrooms were always there. Again, phylogenetically, mushrooms are old, you know, compared to us. 
and they were around and even psilocybin mushrooms were around, but they were probably in nature uh, and not really, you know, not really noticed. Although I don't know if you know the author, uh, Stephen Herod Buhner. Of course. Writes beautiful work and, and writes about how, you know, psilocybin and other fungi in these pastoral ecosystems actually have a lot to do with regulating the way the ecosystem works. This goes back to the whole idea of these things are neurotransmitters, you know, on the ecosystemic level. So it's not like they didn't have a function. But again, when we came along, you know, uh, and began to disturb landscapes and actually, uh, you know, sort of impose our agrarian footprint on those things. We're disturbing the landscape. And it's interesting about psilocybin species. They love, they're invasive species, right? They love nothing more than to colonize degraded areas, you know, where you've cut things down and you've got, you know, rotting material and you, you know, so these impacted landscapes, suddenly they'll show up, you know, because, and so unwittingly, you know, we have created these uh, habitats that are that are perfect for mushrooms, and suddenly they they seem to be everywhere. Nobody nobody noticed before. I mean, the the, the good example of this is like Vancouver. It, it, you know, as as you know, the British British Columbia is home. There's about thirty species of psilocybin mushrooms that are native to that area. Most of them you would never notice them. They're just they're in the forest. They're difficult to find. But they happen to like growing on bark mulch. So, you know, an institution like UBC, they buy bark mulch by the ton to landscape their their uh you know their gardens and so on. So all of a sudden you have Psilocybe cyanescence showing up in these in these landscape areas in great abundance. And People are going to notice those things. I mean, you can't not notice them. So it does seem to, you know, I mean, it, it, maybe it's coincidental, maybe it's an accident, or maybe there's more going on here than, than we know. But certainly, it seems like the more we disturb the landscape, the more sort of visible these things come and, and sort of, you know, tempt us, say, uh, you know, here I am, look pretty good give me a nibble, <laughs> you know, so who knows? Uh, but that, that does seem to be going on. Um, I had a friend, uh, when I lived in Vancouver, uh, a mycologist fellow, uh, you know, and his hobby was to, uh, go around and, you know, he would grow mycelium out on, on bark mulch of some of these outdoor growing species, and then on a given weekend, he'd just go around to parks and things and just, just seed them, you know, and just make sure they were there, which I thought was, you know, a good citizen, a very uh, very good thing to do. Even, even though the, the mushrooms really didn't need his help, but he was feeling like he was contributing something. So, yeah. <laughs> so he had this whole little symbiotic relationship going with these different mushrooms. It was interesting to go to his house because he had most of these species in some stage of, of fruiting, you know, in his backyard. So it was like fairyland or something. Oh my gosh. I mean, it feels, it feels like it goes along, you know, that was the end of the end of the, um, 
the, the our matrilineal or, matri or matriarchal way of living um, kind of ended right around right around uh, the rise of the Judeo-Christian um, you know religions boom booming in, in the world. And I'm just wondering, do you think that this idea of you know the psilocybin mushroom, this idea of sacred plants, is at odds with this with the patriarchal world that we now see, and 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 is it sort of the answer? Is it sort of calling us back to something like that? I know this is getting a little bit more, um, a little maybe a little more woo woo than 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 we normally talk about, but um, I just wonder what your beliefs are on that. You know, is it, is it is this something that is supposed to be a correction not only in our own psyches but in the way that we're we're arranging our civilization and and you know who's in charge? You know, what in gender gender wise. Um, as we move forward. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, it, it, it's not accidental, you know, that, the, that with the rise of the patriarchal religions and the whole Judeo-Christian perspective, the salvationist religions, I, I mean, it's not that these more matriarchal and uh, ecstasy-based and pagan nature-based religions uh, just faded away. No, they were actively suppressed, and uh, every effort was was made to stamp that out. And it's been, you know, that was the beginning of, of the war on drugs, and and the war on anything based in biology. I mean, what what you get with Judeo Christianity is basically a denial of biology and the denial of the intrinsic value of nature. Uh, a denial of uh, the pleasures of corporality in a certain sense of, you know, that anything is important. Our reward is in heaven. Our reward is in the afterlife. That's what we're told. And nothing else matters. And I think that's, you know, I think that that has really poisoned uh, civilization and it's led us to the place that, uh, that we are now, you know, and, and yes, the, these messenger molecules like ayahuasca and psilocybin and even cannabis to a certain extent, these, these things are like indigenous people call these plant teachers. I think it's a very apt way to characterize them. And the plant teachers are getting a little hysterical <laughs> in their efforts to get the message out. This is why you see this happening. It's going global because on some some planetary level, I think that Gaia senses that there's danger to the whole, the whole show, you know, the stability of the whole planetary system. And for whatever reason, these neurotransmitter containing plants and fungi have been sort of delegated to try to uh, wake up the monkeys, you know, talk to the monkeys, make us realize, you know, make us sort of wake us up again to our relationship to nature and make us sort of, uh, it's a wake up call to how estranged we become from nature. You know, our main challenge, I believe in the 21st century is, you know, we have to affect a global shift in consciousness, a global shift in our understanding of our relationship with nature. Number one, understand that we are not running things and we need to be, part of the solution, not part of the problem. We need to listen to these plant teachers and make changes on a global scale, you know, but the first change is we have to wake up. We have to acknowledge that we've gotten seriously off track. 
there are solutions. But until we acknowledge that, until we do wake up, then it's hopeless. So their catalytic, uh, their catalytic uh, influences on consciousness, basically. We have to change this perspective. Then we can begin to make changes. And it has to happen on a global scale. And it has to happen quickly. You know, that's, that's the worrisome part. I think that, you know, you, you look at the way that ayahuasca, for example, is, has suddenly, it's like it's suddenly emerged on the global stage. I think it's a measure of the uh, sort of the urgency of the message that they're trying to get out. Um, I, I think it's interesting, you know, what you mentioned about these, you know, you know, Judeo-Christian, Judeo-Christianity being centered on the afterlife. This is going to happen, you know, everything, you wait until the afterlife to get what you want, you know, to, to feel, you know, to, to reap the benefits of how you lived your life now. And then you have something like psilocybin, you have like, you know, Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins, <coughs> helping people who are suffering from, quote unquote, what we like to term end of life issues, which I think is kind of, is kind of a cute way of saying people who just are scared shitless of what's going to happen next after not really having asked themselves a lot of questions about what, what this all means, um, he, you know, these plants are now being used to help people, you know, make a more peaceful transition, which I feel, which I feel like, you know, is kind of a peek at what's possible and a peek at what's missing, you know, from our civilization right now. Being able to get sort of a, a you know, pull the veil back and see and see the mystery while you're still alive and 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 understand how important it is for you to act the right way now, not for something that's going to happen later, but for what's happening right now, you know, beneath the surface. Yes, exactly. I think that, uh, yeah, I think that things like psilocybin give people the chance to have a meaningful experience while you're still alive. I mean, I don't know if there's an afterlife or not. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But I think to put all your hopes on this is kind of a con game, you know, and, you know, you're supposed to have faith. And I, uh, I don't have much use for faith personally, because having faith is like being asked, believe something, even though there's no evidence for it. You just have to have faith. Well, I'm a scientist. I like evidence. And, uh, and I think things should be questioned. And so, uh, you know, and, and so I think the use of uh, something like psilocybin to have these meaningful, call them mystical if you want, experiences is very useful because they remind people, again, of all these things we're talking about, you know, the, the limitations of our knowledge and the fact that the world is far more mysterious and, and beautiful and amazing and, and sacred, actually, than we ever imagined, you know, and these are things that we need to experience in this life, you know, and hopefully not on our deathbed. I mean, if, if that's the only option, then experience on, on your deathbed. But the sooner one can come to that realization, the, the better, because then you have a chance to share that with other people. I think it changes the way you relate to your loved ones. It changes the way that you relate to nature and your existence. You know, we're very, uh, as a species, we're very uh, prone to look at the future and not value the moment. And, uh, and what's coming out of some of this psilocybin research, people in terminal uh, 
states like cancer and so on, they have these experiences. And you would expect that their response is, well, now I'm not so afraid of death, you know, and, and that is a part of it. But mostly the, the insight that they come away with is something like, I was terrified of dying. I know I'm dying, but I'm alive now. You know, I'm alive now. And now is the point, is the time to focus on the fact that I'm alive and okay, I'm dying, but aren't we all, you know, <laughs> sooner or later, nobody gets out of this alive. The important thing is to value your life in the moment. That doesn't mean you can't make plans, but just appreciate your life in the moment and the people that you love and just simple things, you know, that we experience. I do not understand why. I mean, I do and I don't understand, but it seems like religion, organized religion, is so concerned to make sure that nobody ever has a meaningful personal experience. I mean, that is like Krypton to Judeo-Christian. You know, it's like it's not for you. You're, you know, we're just ordinary schmucks. We're not priests. You know, we somehow don't qualify for that. And they, they do everything they can to hollow out the religion. It carries absolutely no spiritual punch at all that I can tell. It's long been turned into uh, essentially a political organization. Uh, you know, it's more concerned with controlling people's behavior than bringing them close to any mystery. Um, so... What good is it? <laughs> I mean, it's comfort. It's comfort for some people, but it's a false comfort in a certain way. You know, and it's unfortunate because, uh, you know, people could be having genuinely meaningful experiences, a more, uh, you know, realistic way of relating to their existence as human beings, their relationship to other people, their relationship to the planet. But because this Judeo-Christian perspective is so pervasive and it now, you know, completely saturates our society and our political system and everything else, you know, so it, you know, you can't have an, an honest conversation. I mean, if you say anything, anti-religion then you're stigmatized and uh, and shouted down and yet so we have to listen to clowns you know i mean just take a look at the election you know? uh anyway um sorry it's, it's, all, it's all fear it's like fear and ultimate pleasure it's like pol it's totally polarized it's like here's the terrible things that can happen to you and here's all these amazing things that you can get if you if you just behave yourself it's like it's it's treating yes. this population like children and I feel like we've sort of um, deteriorated, you know, into children, you know, a childish consciousness. This is what the powers that be would like, because children, if they're good little children, they do what they're told, right? And so we're, we're the troublemakers. We're the ones who are saying, but mom, mom, <laughs> you know, what about this and what about that, you know? Oh, shut up, Johnny. Don't ask too many embarrassing questions, you know. <laughs> but, but I feel like, you know, as inquiring minds, it's our job to ask questions. And it's our job to think for ourselves. And that's something that 
psychedelics encourage us to do. It's kind of the ultimate act in some way of independent thinking, because, uh, you know, when you take a psychedelic, you can, I mean, you can read up on it and you can become informed about it and you can read other people's experiences and that's all good. You know, it's part of educating yourself, but when the rubber meets the road, it's the, it's the encounter between you and the teacher, you know, and that's not something you can have somebody else do for you. You know, I mean, that's something you have to do. And so very liberating in that sense. It's a validation of the person and, you know, your own ability to take this information in and make it what we will. And this is not encouraged, uh, you know, by religion. How do you, you know, personal question, how do you shut off your, the science, your science brain in Sarah? I mean, I don't know. I'm sure ceremonies are different for everybody, but for me, my enemy in the intense ceremony, whether it's ayahuasca, whether it's a sweat lodge is my own talk, my own, my own analysis and, and thought, thought of what's going on in front of me that can most of the time, you know, makes things a lot harder. How do you as a scientist kind of turn that off and, and allow for, allow for that kind of blank slate or the direct, uh, the direct experience of what, of what's going on around you in, in a ceremonial setting, or do you not? Is there, is there, have you made peace with that? I don't know that I do. I, I'm often not very, not very successful of that at that. You know, I think a lot of us have that because, again, because we are we are so uh, burdened with this 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 idea of point of view and separation from what you're observing is so uh, baked into us that it's very hard to get away from it. I don't think indigenous people have this problem. (laughs) I don't think that children have this problem. I mean, for one thing, they don't have literacy. And I think literacy, as wonderful as it is, gets in the way of direct perception in some ways. And so we have, you know, and we're so uh, bound into that idea that it's very hard to step outside it. Psychedelics let you do that temporarily. But even in those situations, you can't entirely let go of it. I think it's a matter of dose, partly. I mean, that's, that's why the heroic dose, there's something to be said for that, you know, so that you're just so completely gone that these artificial structures of perception go away and you're just, but, you know, um, that's a pretty, that can be a pretty unsettling place to be. I don't take, you know, absolutely heroic doses every time I take ayahuasca. I'm not brave enough to do that, frankly. Um, but I do, and 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 when it happens, uh, it it's a great gift, you know. Then you have a trip where you say, "Yes, this this is what I was hoping for. This is what I came for." Uh, that happens. I don't know, not reliably every time. Yeah. I want to close with one question. It's it's a it's connected to a lot of what we've been discussing, but it's something that you said in a talk and you didn't want to go into this, you know, you, you sort of kind of gave this as a little side comment that you couldn't go into because it just would take too long to talk about. I just wanted to ask you the question, ask you a question that would help you get to that place again, because I was very curious about this. Um, you said women are probably responsible for most of the discoveries which have advanced evolution. And there's a good reason for that. 
can you can you kind of just unpack that a little bit and just kind of delve into it? Women are responsible for most of the discoveries that have advanced evolution. Well, uh, I don't think I don't think there's a particular mystery about that. For one thing, it's pretty clear that that agriculture was invented by women. Probably, I mean, men were out doing hunter gathering stuff, doing the macho things, killing the the buffalo or whatever the the tigers and bringing it in. Women were there looking after the kids, making the food, right? Uh, making the garbage pile into which they are throwing the seeds after they clean the food, noticing, and they're in a position to notice, hey, plants, the ones that we eat are growing up out of the garbage pile. It's a pretty elementary observation, but then, you know, the light bulb comes on and says, we don't have to go forage in the forest for these things. We can actually just clear a spot and grow these things. Agriculture is probably the most significant thing that ever happened to us as a species, you know, and it was women that did that, you know, and women are, I think, because of the connection to children uh, and just their inherent nature, they're closer to biology than men are. You know, and this sort of miracle of fecundity and reproduction and all that. To them, it's an everyday reality. We men, we have to alter our consciousness to get close to that. Women are kind of in that place all the time in a certain, certain intuitive way. So I think that women, uh, you know, had a great deal to contribute in terms of if agriculture was sort of the pivot point that let us turn from hunter-gatherer type existence, which is not necessarily a bad way to live, uh, but into a more sedentary kind of existence that then made things like, you know, civilization and technology and art and music and all of these other things and science and politics and patriarchy. I mean, these things are too uh, many-edged swords, you know. Uh, but I think women, this really originated with women. And uh, like everything, you know, I mean, Eve is the progenitor of, of our species, whatever that, that concept. And uh, that's what I think. I mean, I, I don't know that it's a profound statement. I just think it's, it's an intuition. You know, I mean, ayahuasca, for example, I... People experience ayahuasca as a feminine entity often. But then, of course, there's always the outlier that doesn't experience it that way. And I'm not sure it's, I'm not sure that, you know, if there's a temptation to sort of fall into the sort of uh, pre-concepts, which are some of them are heavily influenced by new age thinking and all that. And that that's basically okay. But that's what it comes down to. That's why it's important to, to kind of, you know, have this personal encounter. And I mean, there are tribes that use ayahuasca that view it as a masculine thing. And in some cases, uh, there's no sexuality. It doesn't have that kind of personality. Uh, mushrooms, for example, uh, are, you know, in a lot of indigenous culture and in, in my own experiences, they're, they're neither masculine nor feminine. You know, they're more like children, actually. Mm -hmm. They're they're asexual. They're 
and many cultures, you know, they, those that use them, they liken them to children. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just, uh, it's, it's one of those, it's one of another, yet another thing that I feel like we either weren't educated on growing up, you know, or it was, we were miseducated on growing up. You know, I, I don't think we ever hear that statement that women are, women were responsible for some of most of the practices that led to our evolution just doesn't seem like that's part of the narrative. And I, I just, I find it to be really well, interesting. The cultural narrative is, is a patriarchal narrative, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the victors get to write history and uh, you know, the women's contributions have always been suppressed, you know, because I think in terms of the, the, the male fear in some ways that if we acknowledge that, that will somehow diminish, diminish us, you know, diminish our sex and it will make it harder to, uh, you know, sort of appoint ourselves. We're, we're the ones, we men are running things. We're the ones that are making all the difference and, and making the difference in the world. But that goes back to the whole illusion that we are running things. We're not running things, you know. And, uh, but it's more convenient for us on a political level and, uh, and a social level if we if we get people to buy into the uh, you know to the idea that that men are in control, um, and you know, and look at the mess that that's gotten us into. You know, I mean, I, I I say let the women have it. They can't do a worse job than we've done. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, <laughs> women are too smart to say why would we want it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I you know it, it gives me a little bit of hope because if 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 this if we're not in charge and we're and yet we think we are and there's all this terrible stuff happening in the world that I think there's this cloud of just doom and gloom that we're all kind of feeling whether it's directly or so, sort of subtly it feels it kind of brings some hope that this ecosystem wouldn't have you know it knows what it's doing and maybe it'll be the end of us but at least it might not be the end of this entire planet as we know it. Yeah, I, I don't think it will be the end of the entire planet. I mean, that's actually something I like about Buner's work because he points out, you know, our species may not, per, you know, may not persist. We may go extinct. Uh, and that's bad for us as a species, since we happen to belong to that species. That may be one of the best things that could happen to the planet. And life is really tough. Life is really resistant, you know, and resilient. And we, you know, as we look at extreme environments on the planet, I mean, the most unlikely places, you know, the bottoms of volcanic vents, uh, you know, miles and miles down into the Earth's crust, you encounter living things everywhere. And so, you know, life is one tough bitch <laughs> in a certain way. And, you know, the conditions on the Earth would have to be extreme, really extreme for all life to uh, to disappear. I mean, we know from evolutionary history there have been times when 95 percent of all terrestrial organisms have disappeared usually that clears the deck for a new flowering and diversity in in the next phase i'm not so worried about life persisting on the planet i mean sooner or later we know there's going to be a supernova and 
you know, it's uh, where everything is going to be burned up. But hopefully by that time, we'll have figured out how to get off the planet. And that may be, you know, that may be part of Gaia's strategy is to kind of force us to do that. Okay, you know, so it's like these primates were the cleverest things and the stupidest things and the most dangerous, you know, development in evolution. So a lot of hopes are riding on us for being the, the catalyst that will enable us to escape when the time comes. But it's sort of like, you know, working with nuclear energy or something. I mean, there's a lot of cool things you can do with nuclear energy. It's not a bad thing necessarily, but it's also extremely dangerous. So it takes wisdom. And that's what we lack. We are, you know, I think that's part of the big challenge is, you know, we're very clever. There's no doubt about that. You look at what we do and we're very clever. Now we're clever enough to manipulate processes that can have a global impact and an impact into the future. So now we have to get wise. That's much harder. And, you know, and that's where the teacher plants come in because they, they're teachers. They will teach us this lesson. And like students, we can pay attention or not, you know, and, uh, but we, we don't pay attention to our detriment, I think. So I could follow up with probably two or three questions, but we're almost out of time. And I want to, want to leave a little bit of, leave a, leave a few minutes for us to talk about the Hefter Institute and, and maybe some, some new, new breakthroughs or new projects that are going on there that maybe, maybe you could share with us. So I think that that would, that would be of great interest to our people here. As you know, the Hefter Research Institute, it's a nonprofit. Uh, and we, so it's 2016. So we're celebrating our like 22nd anniversary. We started this in the early nineties. And at the time it seemed like a kind of a, aspirational idea but now uh, it's kind of like every everything that the we envisioned with the hefter that good science done with psychedelics would uh would sort of result in sort of the rediscovery of their therapeutic of you know properties and their value and we were always convinced of it well now it's happening you know and so there's a lot of work to be done we've moved you know, there's been interesting research. We've shown that, uh, you know, on the policy and, and political level, these things can be studied under government-approved protocols. Uh, and so the challenge now, I think, is to take it to the next level and, and actually build on those discoveries and try to integrate them into medicine, you know, in whatever way that can be done. I think the hospice... Uh, path is very promising, uh, the treatment of addictions, you know, these things are hard to ignore. I mean, when you have a study that shows that psilocybin will be enable people who have been lifetime smokers for 30 years, three packets a day, 80% of those people can give up cigarettes after two or three psilocybin sessions. So that's huge. That's hard for government agencies to to dismiss because of the impact of smoking on, on healthcare and so on. So little by little, I think these things will be reintroduced into medicine. I think there's a great hesitancy on the other side of accepting this because you have to acknowledge in a certain way that these medicines treat disorders of the spirit 
And medicine has been concerned for the last 200 years or so to exorcise any suggestion of a spiritual nature uh, to healing and humanity. And, and psychedelics kind of put that, put your face right into that. But slowly, slowly, these changes are, are happening. And when it happens, it's going to transform medicine. And that's good because medicine is a very dysfunctional activity right now. I mean, look at it. it. It's not really about healing people. It's, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, it's, that's almost an afterthought in terms of the way it operates. So ultimately, if it, if it transforms medicine, it will transform society. And this is happening. You know, um, I guess my concern is it's not happening fast enough. Um, but um, you can only make it go so fast. So hopefully we'll get there before everything completely falls apart. <laughs> what, can, what, what can our our people, our audience, people who are watching this do to support the work of the Hefter Institute and, and find out more and just kind of get involved? Do you, do you have um, a, a, a place for them to go and find out more information? Yeah, absolutely. They can go to hefter.org. That's our website, H-E-F-F-T-E-R.org. Uh, we are not as visible uh, as MAPS. Uh, MAPS is the other organization. Uh, MAPS is also doing great work, uh, but they're focusing on MDMA primarily uh, for PTSD right now. And I don't think that was part of their, you know, I mean, that it's just a matter of opportunity. This is also good medicine and there's a need for it. And that's where they're putting all their resources right now is to get this approved to treat primarily PTSD. Hefter has kind of staked out psilocybin in the same way. I mean, it's not like we're, you know, we didn't get together and say, you guys do MDMA and we'll do psilocybin. Anybody's free to do whatever they want, but our focus has been on psilocybin and we've been investigating it for, uh, you know, uh, primarily for this end of life work, but also as a tool for spiritual development, which is kind of an interesting thing. We have a protocol, there's a protocol at Johns Hopkins right now uh, for religious professionals to, we're trying to recruit priests and rabbis and imams and all kinds of religious professionals to enroll in this study. Very interested to see, number one, if how many people they get and what the outcomes of some of those are, because I think I think that religious professionals, I think that people, you know, they uh, go into religion because they want to help people. There's a compassionate element there. And then just like doctors, you know, they get into it. They get into these structured situations and they, they get very frustrated because, uh, you know, because it's not working. Mm -hmm. you know? And I think a lot of the frustrations that doctors have probably is shared by, uh, by, you know, spiritual counselors and this sort of thing. It's like in the context of the way it's done, it's not working very well. So they're looking for new models. Um, so the Hefter's doing good work, uh, really good work. And, and we're facing a lot of the issues that MAPS is facing now as well in that if these medicines are ever going to be integrated into practice, we have to change their scheduling status. And, you know, as long as they're Schedule 1, it, it's very, very hard to use them outside. Uh, either illegally you can use them or if you have to use them in an FDA-approved protocol. 
they should be available to a wider population of therapists and you got to change the status. So even though our focus is scientific, we can't avoid these policy issues. And that, that is going on now uh, where we're trying to get approval, uh, essentially a status change for psilocybin. Um, on my personal front, I, I'm working with some, some close friends and colleagues uh, now uh, for a long time, I've wanted to start a company. I've always had these sort of entrepreneurial aspirations, uh, but never really, I don't have any business expertise. As a businessman, I'm a complete disaster as far as how you start a, start a company. So uh, a couple of years ago, I met up with a couple of gentlemen who kind of share my perspective, and we've started a, a new company. and. Uh, it's called Symbio Life Sciences, and it covers a whole range of activities, but mostly around uh, partly biosciences research, I think like the project we described at the Gita conference, if you heard that, and then more toward therapeutic and educational uh, type projects, developing new therapeutic programs to use primarily ayahuasca, and we have a, a big focus down in South America to do that. So that's all going forward. That's looking promising right now. We're actually getting, they never have enough support, but we're getting enough seed money together that we can go ahead with this, uh, with this Iboga project, which I'm excited about. And where that's, that's a platform that's gonna enable us to do a lot of other things, uh, you know, in the life sciences area. Very much interested in kind of the, uh, you know, the biodiversity of the food base in South America. So many interesting foods that have never really uh, found their way to a global stage. So, you know, and, and all of the, these things are fraught with, with uh, you know, with, with challenges in a certain way, but uh, you have to preserve your, your ethical perspective, you know, and when you get into companies and capitalism and all that, but we are making an effort. Our corporation is a beneficial corporation. So, you know, profit is not the most important thing. Yes, we'd like it to be profitable. We want there to be benefits that result from what we do. And if we make a little less money, uh, we're fine with that. But with that attitude, of course, I mean, some investors say, well, this is interesting. No, thanks. So I'll, I'll take a pass on this. But other people... They don't feel that way. So, so I'm pretty excited about that too. That, that's kind of where my focus is going forward here. It feels like there's a lot of, there's a lot of threads here that, that we could talk about for a while. I'd love to, I'd love to do another one, one of these talks. There's some stuff we could talk. Yeah. I mean, you know, just, just talk about the, you know, you know, the Iboga. I mean, we could, we could, that could be a whole another talk. I, I feel like, you know, this is, this is hopefully the first of, of many conversations like this and, so yeah, before we go, I just wanted to say again, I mentioned it um, briefly in the intro, but Dennis's new book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, I'm almost done with it. It is a fantastic book. It's, it's, a, it's, it's adventure, it's healing knowledge, it's you know, spiritual, it has everything in it. And if you are a fan, which I am, and a lot of you are, I know, of Dennis and Terrence's work together, this is, this is a must. Uh, Dennis, where can they go to get it? Well, like I say, Amazon is probably the easiest, quickest way. 
you can also go to our website, which is just called Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss.com. And there's a there's a PayPal, you know, there's a cart there. You can order as much as you want. There is actually a collector's uh, hardcover edition you can order from that site. I don't sell too many of those because that's a limited edition. You won't find that on Amazon, but the paperback you can order from there. And that's the easiest way to do it. Or you can come to some of my events because I, you know, when you do a self-published book, you're the shipping captain, you're the warehouse manager, you're, you know, so I just shipped about 400 books to Hawaii yesterday. So I'm hoping I don't have to take them home with me. <laughs> Tell people to show up and buy the book. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure, I'm sure that you won't have any left after, after uh, Hawaii, but um, Dennis, it was a pleasure talking with you. And, and, it, and I think there's a lot more to talk about. Hopefully this is going to be the, the first of many talks like this. Um, I hope so. Yeah. Good, good luck with this. And yeah, real pleasure. Um, Nick and Maylene, you're doing a great work. This is important work that you're doing. So I had a good time. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.